This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley. In March, we celebrate the success of women. And on Perspectives this month, our guests are women. Today, we welcome Jamie Weissman. She's the author of the book, We Are Gathered, a big-hearted, clear-eyed story of life's biggest choices, whom to love and how best to love them. That analysis came from another author, Heather Harpman, who wrote the book Happiness, at Cricket Little Road to Simi Ever After. Now, while We Are Gathered is not Jamie Weissman's first book, it is her first novel. More than a decade ago, she authored the book As I Live and Breathe, Notes of a Patient Doctor. And we welcome Dr. Jamie Weissman, a physician who grew up here in Atlanta, graduated with honors from Riverwood High School, went on to attend Brown University. Her degree originally is in English literature. She graduated, as I did, magna cum laude with honors. Uh, has done a lot of other things, and I guess, Dr. Wiseman, your doctor is an MD, not necessarily the PhD, because you're, you're a practicing physician. That's right. So I am a native. Um, I am a twin, actually. My twin got a little farther away than I did. We are both writers. Well, he is a full-time writer, and I am a full-time doctor <laughs> who squeezes in time to write whenever I have a chance to. So, so tell, tell us about your twin, who is a full-time writer, and, and who he is and what he's doing. You're going to get all the show to talk about your writing and other things, but go ahead. So uh, we are Jamie and Jonathan Weissman, and my brother is has written for many, many different newspapers. He's currently one of the editors of the New York Times, and uh, he has written a novel. He went the other order. He did a novel first and then a nonfiction book, but uh, we have a love of literature that we share. I think we came by it from our parents. And uh, took us in different directions. He became a journalist. I have a little more of a storytelling approach to things. And medicine is a great place to go if you really want to hear people's stories. And didn't you tell me before we began the show that your dad's a doctor, right? Yes. And my father actually recently passed away. But my father was a wonderful sort of old-timey country doctor in some ways and got swept up in technology because medicine moves very quickly. He did once tell me that despite all the things you could do, he was a cardiologist. So he he trained in the days when you really had to look at the patient. That was all you got. That, a stethoscope and an EKG. And medicine really transformed around him But he did tell me when I was in medical school that the most important thing he did was actually take the pulse. He didn't have to take the patient's pulse. The nurse got the vital signs. But it was that initial contact with the patient that let you know you were there. There are a lot of people who can just randomly touch strangers without going to jail. But your doctor is one of them. We hope you're there to see us and you understand it. But you do think This person, you're going to allow this person to touch you, even though they're not related to you. And in many cases, they touch you, you know, in your scalp, on your wrist to take your pulse. I'm a dermatologist. Basically, I see naked bodies all day long. That's not something many people can say who are outside of my profession. So it's fair to say, Dr. Weissman, that uh, through your practice, you've encountered many characters. I have. I mean, and I think when people talk about going into medicine, if you love science, that's 
it's a necessity. You do have to love science to enjoy being a doctor, but it is only a fraction. So if science is your true love, you might actually want to get the PhD and not the MD because there's so much about service that's in medicine. And if you don't enjoy interacting with people, sometimes in a very difficult way, you're often seeing people at their worst moment. Nobody actually wants to go to the doctor. You go because you're supposed to, you're getting a checkup. You go to because you have a rash, I'm a dermatologist, you're uncomfortable, something's bleeding, something's painful, you're anxious, what could this be? So you're encountering people at a time that's not the high point of their life, it's not their birthday. So you have to be ready for that service component of caring for a person and hearing their story, what brought them there. When I was in medical school, actually, they said, you need to ask your patients open-ended questions. You have to let them tell their story. The joke about that was always, if you say, what brings you here to the hospital today? They would say, the bus or my sister. But what we mean is, what concern do you have that has led you to enter my office, my clinic, my hospital today? Your undergraduate degree is in the humanities, in literature, and yet your postgraduate degree is in medicine. You did your studies at Emory. Why not be a full-time writer? Why did you choose the path medicine? Well, there's a short answer and a long answer to that. Well, we'll take the long answer. Okay. Well, my grandfather and my father were both doctors, Uh so that felt a little like the family business. I'm happy to say, though, since it is March and we're talking about women, that I have two brothers, but the woman became the doctor. The I'm a, One brother's a computer scientist, one brother's a journalist, but the woman went carried the torch and uh, from grandfather to father to daughter, daughter. went into medicine. I um, do love literature. I have a passion for books and reading and poetry and storytelling. But the long answer there is... If you read my first book, my memoir, I actually had a serious medical problem myself. So when I finished undergraduate and I got this opportunity to study abroad, which was a fantastic experience, I lived in Egypt for a year, I was getting sicker and sicker. And the idea of being a starving artist with no insurance, this was pre-Affordable Care Act, and um, moseying along that way was really not an option. It was not an option to go to medical school while I was very sick, but I had an experience with medicine beyond what I'd seen through my family. And I had worked in my father's office and I saw how much fun he had with his patients, but I also saw how stressful it was, how little time he had just for himself, and um, went a different path until I realized that um, I myself needed medicine Once they figured out what was going on with me and were able to get me on treatment, the physicians and nurses and um, people involved in my care were such heroes to me. I thought, what's better in life than being someone's hero? There's not a whole lot that can really match that. And there are different ways to achieve heroism, but medicine in some ways is one of the easiest paths to take. So once I was healthy enough, I decided I'm going to go to medical school. It's going to fulfill me in ways I had not imagined when I was younger. It's also going to ensure that I have health insurance and access to health care. And the final thing I would say is in my memoir, I talk about this. Once I got the knowledge 
the medical knowledge of understanding my own chronic disease, I was able to take a lot of the burden of my care off of my father. I made, if you have a physician in the family, everyone goes to that person, you know, and this aunt is having chest pain, this brother has an ache in his hip, what is going on? And there is a tremendous sense of responsibility that the physician in the family has. I took that away from my father. I was able to make decisions for myself in a way that he would have had to continue to do if I had not gone into medicine. So you pursued the career in medicine. And tell me a little bit more about the memoir. It was, uh, let me do the title of it, As I Live and Breathe, Notes of a Patient Doctor. So in that, you tell us what? So there are a lot of books that where physicians have gotten ill and they realize, oh my gosh, I've been doing this all wrong. I don't have a patient's perspective. And there are very there's some wonderful books out there from that point of view. But there really wasn't anything from the opposite point of view. I was a patient first and then I became a doctor. So I had spent years getting infusions, uh, having operations in and out of emergency rooms with my illness. And, and along with the rest of 99.9% of the patients out there, no real understanding of why the decisions were being, certain decisions were being made for me. Why was I taking this medication? Why did I have to get this CT scan? So I transitioned from that quizzical patient vulnerability into being a physician, understanding why things were being done, and also a physician's perspective on the patient. And I really wanted to write specifically about that transition. So the first half of the book is very much about being a patient and becoming a doctor at the same time. And I talk about things from the patient's perspective. Although I'm able to sort of interrupt myself in the middle and say, I understand what the doctors were thinking now. In your profession, you chose dermatology. Your dad was a cardiologist. Your grandfather was what kind of doctor? So my grandfather started out as the kind of doctor that, you know, you go to you would go to medical school for two years and then you would train for two years, you were done. So he delivered babies, took out tonsils. Uh, then the x-rays came along and he decided he wanted to be a radiologist. And we would joke that basically you just threw radiation at people and ran out of the room. His office was actually in his... In, he The office was on the ground floor, and they lived on the upper floors. He was that old-fashioned country doctor at first, became a radiologist. I went into dermatology because if you love – first of all, everyone worries about what's on their skin. But I And I wasn't planning to be a dermatologist. It is the I body's largest organ, school. correct? It, it Well, people have said the interstitium, which is the space between your cells, has taken over. They've decided that's an organ, but that's too ambiguous. I'm sticking with skin. The skin is actually your body's most important immunological organ. It separates you from the rest of the world. And because I have an immunological disorder, I was very interested in that component. It gives you, if you're a dermatologist, you get to take care of babies. You get to take care of the very old. We get you zero to 100. But most importantly, it's, it's one of the few fields still where you don't have to rely on machines. You go in and you actually look at the patient and I had this remarkable case as a medical student at Grady Hospital where no one could figure out what was going on with this uh, patient. I was the medical student, so I was, of course, the most clueless one on the whole team. But a dermatology resident came in and said, I think this patient has an autoimmune disease called dermatomyositis. 
And this patient was sick as stink. I mean, really very ill, getting about to be intubated. And he was getting every workup under the sun and nothing was yielding any results. And we said, well, well, the dermatologist thinks it's that. Let's give it a go treating that. And overnight, the patient got better. And I loved the idea that you could just walk into the patient's room, examine them, and know what was going on internally. And fix it right away. Well, yeah. And the writer who's like, you can't judge a book by its cover. Well, dermatologists judge books by their cover all day long. That's what we do. So you've had this love and passion for writing and literature, your first book, nonfiction, a memoir. Now you've written this novel, We Are Gathered. It's, I think, about a wedding, but you've given it quite the twist. Tell us about it. So this book is actually, it's set at a wedding, but it occurred to me that when you're at a wedding, most weddings follow somewhat of a formula. And the bride and the groom, there's, there's always the, there's the sort of, fun romantic comedy aspect of how did you meet you know did you get a car accident did you you know did you hate each other at first but their story really is just beginning hopefully they haven't had too much tragedy in their lives up until now what's more interesting to me if you're sitting at one of i've been to many many weddings haven't we all right and some are interminable (laughs) (laughs) and you start to look around and think what is that person thinking and how did this odd looking fellow come to be at this wedding they'd seem a little out of place so i imagined who the other guests were at the wedding and i had a lot of fun sort of bouncing them off each other and interweaving their stories i'm more interested in where you end up in a sense and then going back and looking at how you got there than i am in following something that's more predictable boy meets girl fall in love, get married. So these are actually much more damaged people than your typical bride and groom. And they've come together on a day that's there to celebrate love. And I really wanted to write about the idea of love, but I didn't want to write about your typical boy meets girl, girl meets boy love. I wanted to write about more painful forms of love, a mother for a sick child, a um, drug addict who has been forgiven by the people in his life who, who have suffered at the hands of his um, abuse, the consequences of his abuse, a uh, Holocaust survivor who's all alone at this wedding and only tangentially related to the people who are there, a schizophrenic who was on his way to having a great life and had a serious psychotic break. I wanted to put all of these people in the same place and have them see each other And in that feeling that you have at a wedding, you go to a wedding and you may be a little bored. You may be like, oh, I can't believe I had to buy another blender for these people. But in the end, there's always something that gets you when you're there. There's the hope of this love. There's the feeling, oh, your life is starting. There's that joy that you feel of the optimism. You're not thinking about, oh, these people are going to get divorced. Well, some people do, but hopefully not. (laughs) And I wanted to take that... um, compassion and joy and love that people are feeling in sort of a general way and give it to these damaged souls. When do you find time to write? Everyone asks me that question and there's a reason there's a big gap between one book and the other. So my children are teenagers now and I wrote the memoir while I was finishing my residency and I actually published it just a few weeks after my daughter was born. So and I was pregnant with my second actually a few weeks Well, I finished it a few weeks after my daughter was born. It publishes about a year later, and I was pregnant with my second daughter. 
And then I couldn't write anything. My kids were little. I was working. And I actually just told myself, there's a time and a place for everything. And we all have to function under the assumption that life is long. It isn't always long for everyone. And that's a whole nother book that you could write. But functioning under the illusion, at least, that life is long, I'm going to give myself time to just work and enjoy my young children. Then when the children got older and they were doing homework, I would basically open up my computer and start writing. When they were, we would all be around the kitchen table, they'd be doing homework, and I'd be writing. And I transformed from this prima donna writer who needed utter silence in a room with no distractions to someone who could write on an airplane. I could write with the phone ringing, with the television on. I just found time to write. What made you want to write the novel? So this novel, I say, is kind of like ribs. You cook it slow and low. <laughs> I wrote it really slowly. And it began, I, I quote William Faulkner a lot because he said he wrote his, his book, The Sound and the Fury, which is just such a magnificent book. It is. From the image of a little girl climbing up a tree. That was it. Dirty, you know, skinned knees climbing up this tree. I was at a wedding. There was a man who had been very powerful who was in a wheelchair and had had a stroke. That's all I knew. The funny thing about this book is because there are distinct characters and because it's set in Atlanta and I grew up in Atlanta and it's in the Jewish community, that's the community I grew up in, people are kind of who's whoing. And what I tell people in response to this is it's a fiction book. None of this is true. I don't have any great insight. You may know someone who is a Holocaust survivor. You may know a grandfather who's had a stroke. They have their own story to tell. I made it up out of my imagination. But I was so struck by the idea that a once powerful person could be so powerless, could have, he couldn't speak. He would have had a lot to say if I remembered him correctly as to what was going on at on that day at this wedding, but he didn't have that power anymore. So I I wrote his story, and then I put it aside. I actually wrote it before I wrote my first book. And um, I returned to it and thought, I wonder what else, who else was there that day, what he looked like to other people. And I was sort of focused on the concept of this power and powerlessness and a man in a wheelchair. And so the next part I wrote was about a mother of a child who was also in a wheelchair and sort of the injustice of a child in a wheelchair. The child has muscular dystrophy in that chapter and how they might interact with each other. And again, what their thoughts might be, what might be the internal thoughts of someone who could not articulate their thoughts. And it, it just kept going from there. And I would I would encounter people who intrigued me in some way. And what I said to my publisher is, I would invite them to my wedding. Okay, you're invited too. I want to tell your story. And again, I knew very little about the people upon who I used as my muses or inspiration. It would just be that one moment, a child climbing a tree. And from there, I would say, what must it feel like to be that person? But it's fiction. So you're never going to meet any of these people. They don't exist. Are you the type of writer who keeps the the notepad or the dictaphone near the bed so that when you have an idea, either for a scene or for a character or for a trait, you can capture it right away, and then when you go back to it, it's right there? Not at all. <laughs> I wish I were. I, I Actually, when I'm writing, I do 
uh, I never listened to the radio. I love to listen to the radio, by the way. I mean, I, I, and now there's podcasts and things, but I turn off my commuting time. I take the dog on long walks, do not carry my cell phone. I try to get into my own head, and it is amazing. And I try to think, okay, there's a cherry tree in bloom. What would this character think about that? How would this character respond to that? So I try, it's not really method acting, but I try to think about my characters all of the time. And it is amazing how many unconscious moments will come back when you're doing that. But I, and so I think that things that are really moving and really emotional will embed themselves in your unconscious. And that's where they come up. I'm not really, when I tried that technique, I found that whatever I thought was so important at that moment, I can't find a, I would force it into a story and it never rang true. Did you ever take writing classes or basically all of your writing and your novel and your memoir came from your your own educational experience? I did take writing classes in college, a few creative writing classes. And, um, and it is good to have a community of people who will read your work. Everyone says it and it's 100% true. There's two rules about writing. One, you have to read. Read lots and lots and lots of books. I know different people have different rules about what they read. Just as I said, when, I, when I'm when i trying to write a book, I, I'm, I'm really focused. I try to tune out other things. This is not to say that I'm a priest. I don't not listen to the, not watch television, not listen to the radio. But there are times when I'm thinking I'm stuck in traffic. Let me turn off the radio. Let get me in just get in my zone, my creative zone. So I have friends who say, okay, when I'm writing a book, I can't read anything more recent than Shakespeare. I wouldn't say that's me, but they don't want to have their style influenced by someone who's, say, a William Faulkner or a James Baldwin who has a very strong style, and you might find yourself imitating their syntax. So I, I get that, and I do try to stay away from, from that. But when I'm not actively writing, read, 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 read. The second thing is a writer writes. So you just have to sit down and do it. And there are vol- any writer who says that everything they've written has been perfect ready for publication. I have not met this person. (laughs) You are asking a lot from your reader. It's a lot of time to spend. If you give someone a book, they're going to spend six, eight, ten hours with you reading your work. So it ought to be as crafted as it can possibly be and as well thought out. And to me, when I'm reading something as opposed to listening to uh, a radio story, listening to a podcast or watching television where I'm really interested in either hearing what this expert has to say or a plot. When I'm reading, the art of writing is words. And I want to see someone who really thought about the language. I can get plots. I can learn about people, as I said, from the radio, from television. But language is something I can only get from a book. What do you want readers to take away from We Are Gathered, your first novel, Dr. Weissman? I want them to think about love. It really is a book about love and loving the hard edges of people, loving their failures, loving their weaknesses, and forgiving. So if you come away, you may, I have had patients, yeah, patients, sorry, they're not my patients. I've had readers. <laughs> Tell me, wow, some of these people are really unlikable. And I am presenting people who are 
who are difficult in some cases. Some of them your heart will go out to. They've suffered greatly. Others have done things that they're ashamed of. And if you can get into their head and and find a way to love them despite that, to feel for them, to say there, but for the grace of God, go I or go my brother or go my husband, go my child, then you've taken away what I want you to get out of this book. All right, everybody, you are invited to the wedding of Elizabeth and Hank, but the bride and groom are beside the point in the novel We Are Gathered by Dr. Jamie Weissman. And if folks want to find you or find out more about you, where can they find you online? So I have a website, jamieweissman.com, and you can also find me at my practice if you need a doctor. That's medicaldermatologyspecialist.com. Dr. Weissman, congratulations. Thank you so much for having me, Condes. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, MyAndalusCondo29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.